Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh Walker. I'm one of the elders here, if you don't know who I am. So kind of, who is this guy up there talking to you? Um, my privilege to get to share the Word of God with you this morning. I'm excited to, to be able to be here and uh, for us to continue in the book of John. I'm excited about this season. Um, I used to hate Christmas um, for various reasons. You can ask me why later. But now I just love Christmas. I love the opportunity that we get to celebrate the incarnation. And just a few years ago, it began just kind of hitting me again, just the amazingness of the fact that God came to dwell among us and that we can sing about a newborn king. Like what just a phenomenal thing that God came incarnated in a baby. He came through a birth canal and laid in a manger. Like it's just, it's one of the most amazing things ever. And so I just love this season to be able to, to dwell upon the reality of what God did in sending his son. And, and of course, everything that goes from there, right? He didn't send his son just for no reason, but for a purpose. And I just love the season and being able to, to celebrate in all those kind of senses. And I would encourage you, I don't know if any of you have any kind of Advent traditions of, you know, through the whole um, kind of four weeks leading up to Christmas, if there's anything that you do, um, either individually or as a family, I would encourage you to just Look, there's all kinds of resources that you can find that, that help you prepare for the time of Christmas because the world around you is not going to encourage you to worship the sun during this month, right? They're going to encourage you to, to worship at Target and Walmart and, right, and Toys R Us and all those sorts of things. And so do some things where you set aside maybe 10, 15 minutes a day. I just really encourage you to do that every day to remind yourself. And there's kind of, you know, daily devotional things for Advent, things like that, that I just really encourage you to do. It's been really helpful for our family to be able to do things like that. So I would encourage you in that. Now, where we are in the the Gospel of John, we've been in John for quite a while, and we've gotten to what really is kind of one of my favorite sections of the Gospel, because We have the Gospel of John itself is written by John in his later years looking back and saying these are some things that need to be said about Jesus that haven't been said yet, right? The last Gospel written, he's saying here's some things that need to be said. And then within the the flow of the Gospel, we've gotten to that point that it's really the the last things that Jesus is going to say to his disciples before he leaves, before he dies, before he goes to the cross, that these are some of the most important words that you can imagine, right? It's the, what someone's last words are to you before they die are some of the most powerful things that they would want to say. And so that's the section we're in where Jesus is sharing with his disciples. And it's after the meal and right after the meal, he, Judas leaves and he begins to share some things with the 11. And last week we talked about how one of the things that, that Jesus wanted to tell them was that I'm leaving you with a purpose and this purpose is that you might Show forth the kind of love that I've shown you, that I've spent these past three, three and a half years with you, and I've loved you in very special, powerful way. I've loved you enough to discipline you. I've loved you enough to care for you and to sacrifice myself for you. In all these ways, Jesus had loved them. And he says, now it's time for you to love each other the same way. It's time for you to build a reputation as my people, as those that love one another, that care for one another. You know, sometimes we think about loving those that are outside of the church, but Jesus says in a unique way, our reputation is supposed to be built on the fact that we love each other within the body in a very unique and special way. And that's what we talked about last week. And I would like you to pick up with me in John chapter 13. We're going to start in the section we did last week. And just flow right into the next part where we're headed as the disciples begin to ask him some questions. You see, the disciples are kind of like, whoa, wait a second. There's some things you've said that we don't understand. And Jesus is going to answer those and then he's going to bring them back and say, but you're missing the point. Here's what I have for you. So read with me beginning in John chapter 13, verse 31. 
When he had gone out, Jesus said, when he had gone out talking about Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? You see, Simon Peter, as soon as Jesus said, yet a little while, I'm, I'm leaving, Peter kind of tuned out from there on, right? All this stuff about having this new commandment, loving one another, Peter was like, eh, oh, hold on, where are you going? Like, wait a second. And it's not like Peter's unique. I'm pretty sure all 11 of them are kind of wondering the same thing. Like, what? you're going somewhere? Jesus like, I just gave you a commandment. Yeah, but you're going somewhere? Hold on a second. Where, where are you going? See, he really understood what it was that Jesus was saying. Simon Peter says to him, verse 36, where are you, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter says, yeah, right. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You see, Peter, before the night's even out, before, you know, it's morning, you are going to deny me three times. You think you are going to do this, but you're not actually going to do it. You see, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Just says, you can't follow me right now, Peter. You can't follow me right now. Peter says, of course I can follow you. I'm even willing to lay down my life for you. And you see, there's a few things Peter doesn't understand at this point. Peter really doesn't understand his own heart. And that's true for most of us, that there's times where we just don't understand our own heart. Peter doesn't understand what's really going on in his own heart, and Jesus does. And he says, no, Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are. Not only that, Peter doesn't understand the satanic forces that are arrayed against him, that Jesus knows what Satan is about to do to Peter. He doesn't understand that. And even more than that, what Peter doesn't understand is he doesn't know where his Lord is going. And because he doesn't know where he's going, he thinks he can follow him, but he can't. He can't go where Jesus is going. And there's so much irony in what Peter says, right? Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Really, Jesus says, you will lay down your life for me because who's going to lay down whose life for who? Jesus is about to lay down his life for Peter. But you see what he says to Peter? He says, no, you can't do this now, but Peter, you will. There's a day coming when you will lay down your life for me. But not now. Now is the time for me to lay down my life for you. And you look at Peter and you look at the irony and, and you look at this, you know, these good intentions that he has. And, and one person wrote it this way. says, you know, when you look at Peter, you see that sadly good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. Right? It's one thing to sit here in a room like this or to sit with some friends or to be at a community group or to be gathered together with a bunch of fellow believers and to make commitments to this is what I'm going to do, this is how I'm going to live. And it's a completely different thing to live that out on Monday morning or Monday night or Tuesday when things get difficult at work or at school or at home. It's a completely different thing. And for Peter, there they are. You know, they're in the room and yeah, they're a little troubled about some things, but they're up in a secure upper room. They've just, you know, got their bellies nice and full. 
So Peter, ah, you know, I'll die for you. A few hours later in a garden with a hostile mob against him. And then later when he's gathered and a, a servant girl says, and Jesus has been arrested. Are you one of his? He can't even say it then. You see, that's what it's like for so many of us, isn't it? That we make commitments on a weekend. We make commitments in places that we can't keep later. And we're just like Peter. But here's the beautiful, what I love about this whole passage is that Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, yeah, Peter, you're going to deny me, so you're just like Judas. I'm going to cast you out. He says, no, you're still one of mine, Peter. And when we watch the rest of the stories that unfolds in the Gospel of John, you just see the beauty of God's grace that he has for Peter because we're all like Peter. Right? We're all like Peter that we, we make these strong commitments and we think we're going to do certain things and then we fail. And Jesus does for us exactly what he does for Peter. He comes along and he says, it's okay. I'm still preparing a place for you. I'm still the one that's going to get you there. And Peter, like P- later Peter's going to be like, you know what, I'm done. I'm just going back to fishing. And Jesus is going to say, oh, no, you don't. Peter, you've got a job to do. And that's what he wants to say to us is that, look, even if you've fallen, even if you've made commitments and you've fallen away, he says, my grace is there for you to redeem you and to keep you moving because I have a purpose for you. Don't ever think that because of your failures that God can't use you for the purpose that he has. His grace is so abundant. His mercy is there for us that he can still use us no matter how much we fail. Even like Peter who, a servant girl says, aren't you one of his? No, no. He swears. He actually swears that he's not. You see, and God still uses him. Jesus takes in the next section, he says, 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. He's telling them to not let their hearts be troubled? John has already told us twice, once in chapter 12, once in chapter 13, that Jesus' heart is greatly distressed, greatly troubled. Jesus knows that he is hurtling towards his impending death, his shameful death on a cross where he will bear the sins of all mankind, be separated from his father. He knows that he is just hurtling towards that, just, he just hours away from that, and his heart is so greatly distressed. That's what he is looking forward to with full knowledge of everything that is before him. And his heart is greatly troubled, and even in the midst of that, Jesus can look at them and say, let not your heart be troubled. He can look at them and he can comfort them, even though he's really the one that needs the comfort at that moment. He looks at them and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why are they troubled? Well, imagine you're one of the disciples. You spent three and a half years with Jesus. And within a few hours, what Jesus has said to you is, A, I'm leaving. You guys left everything to come follow me for three and a half years. I'm leaving now. Wait a second. I thought we... I thought you were going to be the king. We were going to be like, what do you mean you're leaving? Right? That would trouble them a little bit. Not only is he leaving, but he's going to die. And that's not just part of the leaving because you see the measure of a true Messiah versus a false Messiah. There'd been many people that came before claimed to be the Messiah. How did they know those guys were false messiahs? Because they died. You see, if Jesus is going to die, in their minds, they're thinking that this may mean that Jesus was a false Messiah. It's why the resurrection is so essential to us understanding he was the true Messiah. So for them, he's going, we gave up everything for him. He might not even be the true Messiah. If he's going to die, that means we followed the wrong guy. He's not even really the king. But not only has he told them that, but he also has told them, 
that one of you, the 12 of you that's been here with me in my inner circle is a traitor. And I've known it the whole time. And they didn't know who it was, right? They've been looking around like, who is it? And then Jesus follows that up with saying, Peter, the strongest kind of boldest one in your midst is actually going to deny me three times. So they're probably thinking, well, maybe Peter's the traitor. Peter couldn't possibly be the traitor, but is Peter going to be the traitor? Right, so you can just see why their hearts are getting troubled over all these things he's telling them. Not only that, but he says in Luke chapter 22, he tells them at the same time that Satan is at work against all of you. And the final thing, just to kind of put a nail on it, is telling them that all of them will fall away. Every single one of you is going to fall away. Yeah, I think my heart would be troubled. I've given everything for three years and we've seen you do powerful things and now all of a sudden you're just kind of blowing our world apart and their world is being blown apart in ways they never anticipated. They didn't see any of this coming. Right? The road they saw was, you know, Jesus is going to be king on a throne and we're going to be kind of reigning with them and they've even been fighting about who gets to sit where and all that kind of stuff. That's their vision of where things... And all of a sudden this road's taking a hard right. And they're saying, whoa, like this is getting blown apart in ways we never foresaw coming And for reasons they don't even yet understand, right? They don't get it yet. They really don't get it. You see, the disciples are on the brink of a catastrophic failure as disciples. They, at the moment of Jesus, they are going to all flee. They are going to all run away. They are going to all fail him. Catastrophic failure. The closest ones that have been there with him are on the brink of catastrophic failure. And Jesus, knowing this, in spite of his own great distress... And out of his grace and his mercy, comforts them. And listen to how he comforts them. Going back to chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, listen, you got to trust the Father and you got to trust me. He doesn't say, you know what, I was just kidding. I'm really going to stay with you. He doesn't say, I'm not really going to die. He doesn't say, you're not all really going to fall away. He doesn't say all this stuff that's troubling you is going to get changed. What he says is, trust God and trust me. Trust us. Trust us. We've got you. And there is a plan. The first thing is trust him. And then he says, not only that, but he promises them something. He says, in my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. You see, he looks at him and says, look, I'm going someplace. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the easiest way to understand is he's going to heaven to prepare the place for them to live. It's not like little rooms in a big house. It's dwelling places in all of heaven. And he goes, and if I'm telling you I'm going there to prepare a dwelling place for you, obviously I'm going to come and get you at some point and take you to those dwelling places, right? And you know the place where you're supposed to be. And he tells them, this is, this is where you should have your comfort, is knowing what I am doing for you. Remember, his point with Peter wasn't you can't be with me. It's you can't be with me right now. But you will be with me. And for them, they're wanting to know, how do I get to stay close with Jesus? And he says, you will be. Just trust me. Trust God. Trust me. That's what he says. And I think about how so often the type of comfort that we want to receive or that we want to give to others looks so different than this. 
You see, we're always so desperate to try to fix the situation or to fix the circumstances or to tell people, you know what, it's going to get better. The circumstances are going to go away. And look, I know that we're all going through difficult things. You might be facing physical problems, sicknesses. You may have lost loved ones. You may be unemployed. There's all kinds of trials that we face. And the thing is that we sometimes want to comfort ourselves by saying or comfort each other by saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. It's going to you know, this is going to change. This is going to get fixed. And that isn't the type of comfort that we need. We need the kind of comfort that says we need to trust God. We need to trust Jesus. We need to believe in the end of the story. The end of the story is that Jesus has a place for us. He's got a place for us that is prepared in heaven and that no matter what happens, as Paul talks about the things that happen in this world, he says they're momentary light afflictions. Now, I've got to be honest. Sometimes they don't feel very momentary and they don't feel very light. But in the perspective of what God has planned for us in all of eternity, Paul can say they are both momentary and light. And Jesus says, trust the Father, trust me. And that should be where our comfort comes from. Our comfort for each other needs to be trust God, trust Jesus, trust that he's doing the right thing. Not, don't worry, it's going to be okay, everything's going to get fixed. If we mean it's going to be okay when we get there, and it's going to be even okay because Jesus will get us through and sustain us, then it's okay to say that. But generally when we say it's okay, we mean, oh, it's going to get fixed. It's going to be okay that way. And Jesus says, no, that's not the type of comfort that I offer. I offer comfort that is in the midst of the trials. Jesus ends it with saying, you know the way where I'm going. And so first we had Peter say, whoa, Lord, where, where are you going? In verse 36. And now Thomas says, Wait a second, time out. We don't know the way. What, what are you talking about? Right? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the, where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is like, we need directions. Uh, you just said we know the way. We don't know the way. Let me get out my papyrus and my you know, little pen. What, we're going to turn left where? Okay, at the, go to the temple, turn right, up the Hinnom Valley. Okay, we got it. Um, See, in Thomas's mind, this is a place that Jesus is going to. And he needs to know, how do we get to this place? And Jesus corrects him to say, it's not about getting to a place. It's about getting to a person. And ultimately, it's about getting to the Father. That where I am going is to be with the Father. And so when Jesus answers him, it's to correct that for him as well. And so what he says to him in uh, John 14, 6, a, a verse that many of us have memorized, he says, Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus says, look, it's not about getting directions. I am the way. I am the trail. I am the road. It isn't that you need a road. It isn't that I'm going to make a road for you that you then can follow in my path. It is that I am the way. I am the one that can get you there. You see, sometimes we, people look at, at Jesus and they, they think that what Jesus did is he kind of, you know, he showed us how we all should behave. And if, they, we, if we act just the way that Jesus acted, then we'll be able to get to heaven just like Jesus did. And Jesus says, no, that isn't it. I'm not just showing you a path that you walk the same path. I am the path. And the only way to get to the Father is through me. And he says, I am the way because, right? The, the reason he connects it with the truth and the life is it is because Jesus is the unique mediator, the unique giver of God's truth and of God's life, right? It says that he is the one that gives life to us. 
He is the one that gives us truth. How do we get to the Father? By truth and life. Who is the unique one that can give us those things? The Son. So he is the way because he is God's truth and God's life. He is the one that can lead us there. And so the the second half of this verse, which a lot of people get hung up on, no one can come to the Father except through me. People get hung up on this and think, isn't this narrow-minded? Isn't that unloving? Like, how can Jesus say that? Is we're really missing the point there. Because if we understand the first part of what Jesus says when he says, I am the way, because he, right, he is the unique mediator of God's truth and life, then how can there be another way? He is the unique giver of those things, and those are the only things that will get us there. And the point isn't that Jesus is exclusive because we don't want any other ways. It's that there is a way. Do you understand that? That without Jesus, there is no way. So when Jesus says, I am the way, it isn't like, oh, so, you know, well, there's only one way. It's Jesus saying, there were no ways. And now there is a way. And look what it takes to, to open the way. It took God sending his son to be incarnate, to die on a cross. That, that's what it took to open this way. And he says, there is a way now that's open, and I am the one who is that way for you. Don Carson, a, a theologian, has written what he calls a triplet of sonnets about this passage that I'd like to read to you. So it's kind of three poems in one, if you will. Written from Jesus' perspective, you'll see. He says this, I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path to blaze a trail that you may simply follow in my tracks, pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe my way as just a road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, stark rejection draped in agony. My, God, my way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other path is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God. I do not claim I merely speak the truth as though I were a prophet but no more, a channel stirred by spirit power of purely human frame. Nor do I say that when I take his name upon my lips, my teaching cannot err, though that is true. A mere interpreter I'm not, some prophet voice of special fame. In timeless reaches of eternity, the triune God decided that the word, the self-expression of the deity, would put on flesh and blood and thus be heard. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. I am the resurrection life. It's not as though I merely bear life-giving drink. A magic elixir which men might think is cheap because though lavish, it's not bought. The price of life was fully paid. I fought with death and black despair for I'm the drink of life. The resurrection mourns the link between my death and endless life long sought. I am the firstborn from the dead and by my triumph, I deal death to lusts and hates. My life I now extend to men, men and ply them with the draught that ever satiates. 
Religion's page with empty boasts is rife, but I'm the resurrection and the life. That's powerful. You see, what Jesus is saying here is so powerful. He looks at Thomas and he goes, Thomas, you do know the way. You know the way because you know me. You see, the disciples have known Jesus, but the point that John is making here and that Jesus is making with them is although you have known him, you haven't really known him yet. And that leads right into what the question is with Philip. So first of all, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And then Thomas says, we don't know the way. And all along, they're kind of missing most of what Jesus is saying. And then in verse 8, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Right? Philip kind of, all right, okay, we got it. So it's not about where you're going. And it's not about really how to get there. It's about a person. It's about knowing the Father. So show us the Father. And Jesus looks at him and just says, look, Philip, you don't get it. You've known me, but the part you don't, haven't yet understand is that in me, God has expressed him. God has dwelt in me in order to show forth completely who he is. That he looks at Philip and he says, verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, he's looking at him saying, have you missed the main point here, Philip? Have you missed the main point that if you see me, you have seen the Father? You see, Philip's been with, he says, you've been with me so long. Three plus years, Philip's been with him. And Philip still missed the point. You know, it made me start thinking about how many of us tend to think that just by being around things, by coming to church each week, by being around Christians, somehow that's going to kind of get us there. And look, if that's the way you're thinking, if you think that by kind of coming each week that somehow it's going to rub off on you, this isn't something that rubs off. If it did, then Philip would have been set. I'm pretty sure that 24-7 with the Son of God incarnate for three plus years would probably get you there. A lot better than coming to church once a week is going to get you there. You see, it's not about it rubbing off. It's about truly knowing who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I am God incarnate. I am God in the flesh. And you can see the Father when you look at me. You see, Jesus makes what is really, we we can read over it so easily, but he makes what is really one of the most staggering claims in all of history. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is saying that the, the sovereign creator, omnipotent God, who has made all things, hold all things together by the word of his power, everything you can think about of God, you, he dwells in me. That's what Jesus is saying. He When you see me, you see him. It is a staggering claim. It's unbelievable. And especially for a Jewish context, for them to look at him and say, wait a second, that that would be blasphemy, except for it's true. That he has come and dwelt among them. And Jesus says, look, here's how you can know it. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
You know, John's kind of pulled us to this idea of like Jesus being on trial and us having witnesses. Jesus says, here's three witnesses to this fact. Number one, I am in complete unity with the Father. That the Father and the Son are in complete unity with one another. And number two is he says, my words, I speak not my words, but I speak the Father's words. And number three, he says, look at the totality of my life. Look at my works. He, earlier, the Jews picked up stones. They were going to stone him. And he says, for which of my good deeds do you stone me? But it was, it was the totality of his life. It isn't, he isn't just talking about like the miraculous things that he did. It's not just like the signs and the wonders. But he's saying, look at my life. I have shown you the Father in everything that I have done. And when we look, we, we have to ask the same thing that Jesus is essentially saying to Philip. Have we been with him so long and do we know him? I just want to say, do you know him? Do you know Jesus as the sovereign, omnipotent God come in the flesh? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Or have you just been hanging around for a while and not really going all the way? Look, come talk to someone afterwards. Come up to the prayer room. Grab someone. Grab someone. You came with someone. Talk to someone about this if this is where you are. That we need to truly know him. There's important things on the line here. And then Jesus brings it all together. In verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. You see, up to this point, the disciples have been the ones asking all the questions and kind of missing the point. And Jesus says, okay, hold on. I'm going to bring it all around for you. I want you to understand the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, the disciples' main concern has been, where are you going and how do we get there? You see it with Peter, you see it with Thomas, you see it with Philip. Like, where are you going? How do we get there with you? And Jesus says, hold on a second. I'm here to comfort you, but I'm not going to comfort you by fixing any of those things. I'll tell you how we're going to get there. I'll tell you that part. But I'm here to comfort you for a purpose. I have a purpose for you. You see, Jesus is about to turn over the keys to the car to the kids. He's about to pass the baton to the ones that are supposed to run the next lap. You see, Jesus has prepared them in order to carry on the purpose that he has been fulfilling. Now, in a unique way, Jesus has displayed the Father, and yet what Jesus says is what I am leaving to my people is to continue to display the character of God, to put on display the glory of God to this world, that you as my disciples are going to be the ones that carry on the task that I started. We can go all the way back to last week's sermon, that by demonstrating the love that I showed to you, by demonstrating it, so that people can see what I'm really like. He's saying, look, the, the works that I've done is I have lived out the Father working through me. You are now to continue that. And not only you, but all those who will believe in my name are supposed to continue that on. You see, that's why I want to comfort you. Because I don't want you to be over there, the 11 of you kind of in despair. You know, we're, we're going to go back to fishing, which is what Peter starts wanting to do later. Right? That's not what I want because I have a purpose for you. And Jesus looks at us, all of us that have come after, and he looks at us and he says, look, I don't want you getting off track. I don't want you getting derailed. I want you to understand I have a purpose for you, and my purpose is to put myself on display. When he talks about glory and glorifying himself, I want you to think putting God on display. 
That's the glory of God. It's when his character is shown forth and shined out into the world. And that that is his intention with us, and it has continued to be his intention. You see, it necessitates what we're going to talk about next week. That we look at that and we say, Jesus, have you looked at us lately? You kind of want to look at the 11 and go, Jesus, you sure you want to leave it to these 11 guys? The strongest guy you said is going to deny you tonight. And that's what leads us to what we're going to get to next week, the necessity for the sending of the Holy Spirit. You see that God will actually indwell us and by doing so will be able to let us live out and shine forth what he's like to the rest of the world. You see, you see all of the, the Godhead at work here that Jesus says, I came to connect you to the Father and now I'm going back to the Father, but I'll be back for you. And in the meantime, when you pray, I will do it and I will send my spirit to you. So don't worry, we've got you. That the Godhead has us. You see, sometimes some Christians, I'm sure none of you have ever had this attitude, but some Christians have the attitude of I'm just going to bide my time until... He comes back. I'm going to bide my time until I get to heaven. Right, it's like I got saved, and now I'm just going to sit on my duff and, and wait until you know, he comes to get me. I'm sure none of you have ever had that attitude. But just in case someone you know does, Jesus confronts that. So he says, look, I have saved you for a purpose. And even when people think that way, they miss the point of what the end of the story is even about. Because all of this, God saving us and redeeming a people for himself, is to put himself on display. It's so that he might fill up and show forth what he's like. You see, that's ultimately what he's about in all of this. When he created from the beginning, all of it is to put himself on great display. So when he says these works that he has done, he's talking about the totality of his life. Some people have, have looked at this and said, oh, so this is about all the miraculous things that Jesus did. So we're going to do all the same miraculous things that Jesus did. In fact, we're going to do more of them. Well, I don't know. I haven't walked on water yet. I haven't raised anyone from the dead yet. I haven't done any of that. So I'm pretty sure that's not exactly what he was talking about. And when you look at what he's been saying right before that, he's saying his works are the totality of his life, which include those things. But it's so much more. And that when God wants to put himself on display in your lives, I want you to understand, he doesn't want to just do it in some big whiz-bang moment. That what God wants to do is to put himself on display in your life in the everyday, mundane things that you do. You see, sometimes we think about that there's these things over here that are holy and special and sacred, and then over here are just kind of the rest of life that we just kind of have to slog through. And what Jesus is saying is, no, all that stuff over here, going to school, going to work, living with family, eating, sleeping, all of that should be done to the glory of God. And all of that can be done in such a way that puts God on display. That Jesus is saying, look, my works, the totality of my life has put God on display. And now the totality of your lives, everything that you do, the way that you eat, the way that you sleep, the way that you rest, the way that you play, the way that you work, the way that you go to school, everything that you do should be putting God on display. It's in the totality of what we do. And he says, not only are you going to do the same thing, not only are you going to put God on display, but it's going to be greater and I think there's two ways in which it's greater. The first one is there's just going to be more of it. You see, Jesus was one person living in one locale. And so the degree to which he's shown forth the Father was limited to the people that could see him. And what he's saying is, after I accomplish redemption, this thing's going to spread through the whole world. So that there are going to be people all over this planet putting me on display. So in one sense, it's greater because there's going to be more of it. But I don't think that's the main point, that when Jesus says... There's going to be more. It's going to be greater. 
He's saying it because they will live in a context where redemption has been accomplished. You see, for Jesus at this moment, he's looking forward to the moment when redemption, the, the fixing of all things that, you know, everything got broken back in Genesis 3 and that moment where everything's going to be redeemed at the cross and to the resurrection that he's looking for and he's saying, you're going to be able to live after that. And there's a difference in living after that as opposed to living before it. You see, we get to live in the context now after the cross where the kingdom of God is now victoriously spreading to all the nations. And as, as the gospel message, the message of the kingdom is spreading, it has saving, transforming power. The people of God now stretch from the Jewish origins to all people of all nations everywhere. That now all followers of Christ are empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit to do powerful ministry. That's why it's greater. Those are all things that are different now after Jesus went to the Father, as he said. And you look at what Jesus says, this is how I am going to participate in this, is that you will ask me things, and when you ask things that, as he says, in my name, that is in accordance with his will, in accordance with what he wants done, that when you ask those things, he will powerfully do those things for us. You see, when we understand that the heart of God is to take us and to put himself on display, I hope that drives you to desperation. Because I know when I look at my life and I think, okay, you're supposed to take Josh Walker and put yourself on display, God. You're going to need to do something amazing. Because I could tell you my story. This is not who you'd pick to put God on display. But God has chosen to put himself on display through people like me and people like you. And that should drive us in desperation to God, in prayer to say, God, do it. Put yourself on display. Show your grace through me. Show your mercy through me. Show your sacrificial love through me. In the everyday things that I do, show yourself through me. And I'm desperate, God. And when we pray that, God says, Jesus says, I will work in that. And it's why he's going to lead immediately into, and I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send another one that's just like me to be with you and to dwell in you. You see, let's just bottom line this, that what Jesus wants to happen, what he's trying to do with the disciples isn't just answer a bunch of questions for them, but he wants them to have confidence. He wants them to have confidence so that. He wants them to have confidence not so that they feel better, but he wants to have them, them to have confidence so that they will live out the calling he has for them. And he has the same thing for us. And that confidence doesn't come from believing in ourselves, right? That's the common thing in our world, is you just need to believe in yourself. You just need to believe more in yourself. Have you looked at yourself lately? Yeah, you need to know yourself, but as soon as you know yourself well enough, you're going to want to run to God pretty hard if you're anything like me. You need to believe in him, not believe in yourself. We need to believe in God. We need to believe in Christ. And that when we do that, he says, I will empower you then. You will have confidence to go out and to do what I've called you to do, which is to put me on display. You see, his transforming power, his work of salvation, his calling people to himself is all so that he might gather this people to put himself on display. We are his trophies of grace. That in your life, in your your dirty sin and ugliness, and in my ugliness, what God says is, I can put my grace on great display and my mercy on great display through dirtbags like us. Right? 
And he takes and he puts himself on great display. And my prayer for us is that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that phrase, a key phrase that we're going to open up more next week, that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be people that put God on display. That when people look at us, not just individually, but corporately, in all the ways that we are able to display him, that they will see an accurate picture of God. That's our heart's desire. Let me pray. Father, thank you for adopting us as children. And right now, Lord, we cry out to you as our dad. We beg you to make us into children that are worthy to be called your children, that you can only do that by the power of your spirit. We pray that you will move mightily in our midst, that you will move mightily in our hearts, that your spirit will empower us to put you on display. God, when people look at us, when people look at your church, may they see you accurately. Lord, in so many ways, people have seen a false picture of who you are. And we, as a body of believers, want to be those that truly put you on display. We beg you, God, to empower us by your spirit, empower us to put you on display. God, we want you to be honored. We want you to be shown forth to be great and magnificent and holy and amazing exactly the way that you are. May you empower us to do that. We beg you in the name of Christ, our Savior King. Amen.